Welcome to the Power of Sports podcast, where the jocks meet the geeks and we all share equal parts of the pie. On today's show, we speak with Andy Schwartz, an economist and partner at the firm Oscar, spelled O-S-K-R, the chief innovation officer at the Professional Collegiate League and a board game inventor. Andy is a fascinating and funny guy, and I think you'll really enjoy hearing him talk about a range of topics, from his view of the two major camps criticizing the NCAA, team market and team reform, and the power of using markets to grow the size of the college sports pie, and finally, and rightfully, sharing it with the people who bake it, the athletes. Andy has also cooked up an alternative to the NCAA, which he and his colleagues call the Professional Collegiate League, which promises to offer young basketball players another way to make money and get an education without the constraints of the NCAA system. So listen in to Andy explain why he sees the NCAA as a wage-fixing cartel, why Monopoly is a poorly designed board game, and why many sports are similarly designed, and why he wants you to pull out your Italian to English dictionary to look up the word stronzo. Hey, Andy, are you drinking out of a beaker? Is that coffee out of a, hey, um, is that? what's an Erlinger flask that was oh. converted into a coffee mug? Oh, how interesting. They, they cut off the thin part. Does it make the coffee taste better, different? No, but one of the many things I did during COVID was sort of substantially ratchet down my caffeine intake. So this is mostly decaf, but I, I use it to dole out my little bits of caffeine that I'm allowed. I see. Oh, how interesting. So let's, let's start. Let's start at the beginning then, Andy, because I, I always like to try to start these shows when I interview people with talking about how sports sort of caught their attention when they were young. What was it for you? Was there a particular sport that you played or watched that you were really just enamored with? Well, you wouldn't you wouldn't know it from looking at me now. But when I was when I was younger, I was I actually was pretty sporty. And I, in the 70s and 80s, I played I was like, you know, three sport. I, I played baseball, I played football, I played basketball at youth levels, you know, not. And, and the last sport I gave up actually was football. Mm -hmm. I was a running back. I was too small to play, obviously. What's funny is the evolution of the game now, I'm actually the perfect size to be a running back in the NFL now. If you assume I worked out and, and, <laughs> and you know, uh, focus on muscle and things like that, which you know, I didn't back then, but I'm 5'8". I'm a very low center of gravity because my legs are actually short. Like my upper body is big, but my legs are short. And so I was like a churner. Like I stopped because well, this is stupid. I'm never going to be any good at football, but you know, like, you know, the world turned around. This is not to say that I would have actually been good if only I had known, but it's just funny how like the definition of what is the right body type for a given sport can change. Maybe not basketball, but you know, there's, I feel like James Naismith, if he had just put the the hoop on the ground, like it would have, in some ways it would have been like, then it would have been a height independent sport or made it like, you know, like that. It was like, it was like the hoop was out of bounds. And so you couldn't get within a certain range of the, of the basket. But anyway. So no dunking, you mean? Well, it wouldn't have just been no dunking, but it would have been that the height wasn't a particular, particular advantage Little kids could have played it like like it would have been just as easy for little kids to play it as big kids. Whereas now you have to lower the rims for the little yes. kids and things like that. But and actually we're launching a board game on March 8th. And I guess I should just say go to bit.ly slash all capital KS underscore capital E lowercase O capital C. So it's KS underscore EOC with the O is lowercase envelopes mm -hmm. of cash. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You go there between now and March 8th. It's a pre-launch page. You click notify me. And then on March 8th, it'll tell you it's open. If you go there on March 8th through May 4th. And actually, since we were talking about board games, it's like a lot of things. Board games, Monopoly is the classic one that we, we sort of modern board game uh, players like to piss on. Mm -hmm. Board game design sucked when Monopoly was made. They really didn't understand like board game theory. And so Monopoly has all of these flaws, but mm -hmm. it's established and people know how to play it. So you don't have to, you know, it can just, it's like sourdough. You, you're, somebody already knows how to play it. Nobody, you don't have to read the rules. You have the sourdough starter. You have the monopoly mm -hmm. starter. Just take the, if someone will tell you how to play, if you don't know how to play, it's a horrible game. 
<laughs> I mean, and I, I mean that like not, I mean, not like in the sense of like the evilness of what it represents, but it's a horrible game in the sense of it just has bad design. Okay. And it's not really very fun. The fun comes from being social with your friends, but there are so many sure. better ways to do it. Most of our sports are a little bit like that too, which is that if we were to, if we could erase the path dependence from the 19th century and design sports now and people understand, I think the, the science of competition a lot better, we could make much better games. And some sports have evolved. Like, you know, the fact that we put in basketball as an example, the fact that the three-pointer came in at some point. Mm-hmm. I've watched old old footage. I think I saw one where Pete Maravich made some three-quarter sh- ha- shot. Oh, he was, cra- he was crazy to, good, yeah. To tie up a game and send it into overtime. It would have been a three-pointer. But so anyway, that's a long way of saying, yeah, I played all the sports and then and then combination of being short and scrawny and also being really, really studious mm-hmm. and, and, and anal and being like, I don't have time to focus on anything but school. So I just stopped playing organized sports in high school. Mm-hmm. And, and, but then, you know, and this is like in the mid eighties, oh, you need to have stuff on your seat, on your, on your college application. So I picked the least sporty sport possible in 11th grade. And I went out for the sailing team. And this shows you how I, I grew up, I went to public school, but I went to public school in, in New England, a snooty town outside of Boston. And we sailed in a, in a, in a competitive league against a bunch of private schools where of course in New England, you're going to have a bunch of, of, you know, yacht club kids, a bunch of fishing towns where the kids like fish with their parents, like, you know, like working class sailing kids, like, and, and then, and then there were two or three basically public schools where the kids were all in country clubs too. And I, I was not a country club kid, but I had learned to sail because my grandparents lived in, on Long Island Sound in Connecticut. And my we visited them a lot and I was going stir crazy. And my parents realized I was going stir crazy when they would take me down there all the time and there was nothing to do. And so they got me a tiny little sailboat, which I would sail basically as far away from all the adults that were there as I could, like 10 miles on a little tiny little sailboat. And so I knew how to sail and I needed something to, to get into college. So I've, I have a varsity letter in sailing from Wellesley High School. How fun. And and then did you continue and, and, and that? Sailing, by the way, sailing is one of the only co-ed sports at, at the NCAA level too. And it was co-ed in, in, in high school too. As a guy who was super awkward with with girls at the time and women still, even with my <laughs> wife, it was, it, it was helpful because it helped me develop friendships with, with girls too. So lots of benefits. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we don't have a lot of co-ed sports as you, as you mentioned, which probably contributes to some of our societal problems at any rate. So, and then did you continue to, to sail when you went to the Stanford sailing team is actually quite good. We sailed in the, the eight, eight people on the starting team. So four boats of two. Mm-hmm. And I was the eighth, I, the, the worst starting sailor on a high school team that was mediocre so no, I didn't stay at Stanford. The only, the only like the two things at Stanford. One, the day I showed up, I was 125 pounds as a, as an 18 year old. So like I, I was short and scrawny. I got recruited un, I mean, informally. There was a note under my door from the the, the rowing team, the crew team. Yes. Do you want to be the coxswain? Yeah. First thing I saw. This is kind of funny now because I wake up super early. I can't sleep in the morning. I slept all the way until 5:15 today. It was a modern miracle. 4 a.m. <laughs> is more likely. I, the crew team got up at 4 a.m. to practice and run. And I was, as soon as I heard that at the time, that was impossible. And I was like, no, there's no fucking way that I'm going to <laughs> be getting up at 4 a.m. my freshman year of college. So I didn't do that. The other thing was, I then, it, my sophomore year, I tried out for the ultimate team, ultimate mm-hmm. frisbee, which is a club sport at Stanford. And, and Stanford is really good at ultimate. And I was pretty good. Not as good as some of my friends who made the A team. I was the captain of the B team. I was made captain not because I was the best of the B team. I was middle of the road, but because I could run a spreadsheet and keep track of who was going to be on the bus and things like that. Sure, um, sure. So my economist skills, even though I was a historian at the time, yes. my economist skills were already sort of coming to the fore. But so, yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah sorry to cut you off there, Andy. I, I wanted to ask you about that because I know last time we talked, you told me a little bit about this, but I think my listeners might be interested. You You began your your studies at Stanford in history, and then later became an economist. And, and I don't, 
I don't know many people who take that trajectory. So I'm curious if you could elaborate on why. Gosh, I'm, I was one of those, I mean, I, I don't know how to say this without sounding like a total, I don't know, something I'll say it in Italian, stronzo. People can look up that up if they don't know what it means, but like, no, I'll have to. I, I was a little good at everything, a little good, like, like a sort of a, like whatever the, like, whatever the like light version of a polymath mm -hmm. is like, it wasn't, like I was a genius and everything, but I was, I was decent at everything. I like, like I took the AP test in math subjects and verbal subjects and, you know, and so I didn't really know who I was coming out of high school. Sure. In part because I kind of was following the flow. It's like, well, if I'm good at something, that maybe was what I should do. So there right. was a time. So winter quarter, Stanford's on quarter, winter quarter of my freshman year, I wanted to take essentially 20 units of coursework. And that's the most they would let you take. And I really felt that was a mistake and I should only take 15. Mm -hmm. And so the, or maybe, maybe it was, I was just set up for 23 and the most I should, the most you could take was 20. It was something where I was oversubscribed. And so there was two classes and I was like, I'm only going to take one of these two because the other ones were pretty much all required. And one was Polish Lithuanian history, which was obviously not a required class, but I figured, cause I was thinking about being a historian. If, if I like this class, then that's probably a sign that history is a good subject for me. And the other one was Calc 44, 41, 42, 43 was the requirements at Stanford. I had placed out of 41 and 42. So the first quarter I had taken 43 and I had done fine. And I was like, this is the same as high school. I'd already done this. No, no worries. Mm -hmm. 44 was the first sort of new class. And that's what I would have taken if I sort of went on the mathy trail. And mm -hmm. I guess then I would have become maybe, maybe I would have become an economist for real. Then mm -hmm. I don't know. And I just adored Polish Lithuanian history. Hmm. The professor was great. It turns out he was like sort of the foremost English language professor of Polish history. And he had come to Stanford as a visiting professor. So it was a good time to take it. And, you know, it was kind of like my path was sealed. Now, as it turns out, I went off to grad school to get a PhD in history and for other real non-academic reasons was just miserable. And, and mm -hmm. it kind of history got kind of got blamed for it. At 23, when I was in grad school, it was not a good time to be in a library 20 hours a day by myself doing directed reading because I ended up at a program that used an Oxford style. It wasn't really any classes. Yeah. I, I still needed to be young. Sure. At 23. And, sure. and I was, I was asked to be 50 at 23. So I wasn't I hear you. that. So, I hear you. so th then I, then I left and we can talk about how I ended up becoming an economist, but that's how I stopped being a historian. But you know, th that branch in the road left a whole path of my life on untapped. I mean, I took a physics class because it was still a science requirement and I took it with calculus because Without calculus, I had to write papers. And I was like, I write history papers all the damn time. I'd rather do some, take some derivatives and, and, you know, and use the mathy part of my brain once more than have to write another paper because, you know. Sure. I, I don't know if you've ever been on the quarter system. I think, yes, Kasueb, as, as I like to call it, my wife yes. is a, a double graduate of Kasueb. You guys are on quarters. Yes. It's really hard, you know, semesters for papers. It's not like we had fewer papers. Because a history class will generally have one or two papers, whether it's 10 weeks or 15 weeks. Sure. And so you're jamming those papers in for history. Now, maybe for other classes, you spread it out more. So, so you know, I feel like doing, doing, a, doing a, a humanities major on quarters is harder than doing one on semesters. I would agree with that. Yeah, it's probably I mean, because you, yeah. you need, if you're going to read books, you're going to read probably the same number of books. So you're, you're like always doing- That's right. There's this word, this word, these word tasks. And so, yeah, so I took, I, I, I took advantage of the fact that I'm quantitative enough. Mm -hmm. So for all those things that I had to get out of the way, like I took a logic class that was all about programming and that was fun and things like that. But yeah, so, but, but I didn't really, I let the math part of me wither. And one of my roommates has got a PhD in mathematics. So, you know, I saw I saw what he did. It was, I was never going to be that kind of mathematician. Sure, sure. But I could have been in it. I mean, I could have been an engineer if I'd wanted to be. I never really had any interest in that, but I had those chops. And so then when fast forward like 10 years and I'm mm -hmm. struggling to figure out who I want to be post 
historian, mm-hmm. like def- I'm a defrocked historian at this point, and it became available to me to do a PhD in in marketing, which sounds like I don't know, like like fuzzy, but no, in let's say the studying of markets, which in economics is called industrial organization, which itself doesn't sound like what it is, but essentially studying of how firms interact in markets and set prices and organize an industry, hence industrial organization. To me, it didn't seem like such a stretch to say like, yeah, yeah, 17-year-old Andy could totally have handled this. Well, it turns out 27-year-old Andy, it, it turns out brain plasticity does (laughs) <laughs> change over 10 years and it not does. exercising certain muscles. So it was a lot harder. And, and I have never really totally recovered from that 10 year gap. So mm-hmm. I'm a good economist, but I'm not a great economist. I think, I think, I, I don't know if I ever would have been great. I would have been a better economist if I had gone on that path immediately, mm-hmm. but I still have the benefit of 10 years of learning how to think like a historian. And I bring that. So I compliment my colleagues and I was just on a, a work call before this this talk where we in fact talked about it. there's going to be a point on this case we're working on where once we figure out the math of what we're doing which i mm-hmm. am a participant in but not the lead on okay we also need to figure out how the heck we're going to explain it to a judge yes yeah and that's my job yeah so i yeah. need to make sure i understand it once i understand it really well i can then it's not even dumbing it down it's just translating it that's right it's so that it's both accurate, but also intelligible to a different audience. It's a, it's a skill. It's an underappreciated skill, I think. Um, I agree. And it's not one that you really need to get a PhD in economics or to be a successful economist. Mm-hmm. But I think it is one that you would need to be to be a successful driver of public policy, as an example. And that's not the kind of economics I do. I do, I do expert witness work. But so if you want to persuade a jury, ultimately... Sometimes juries are persuaded by those same sort of things that persuade a venture capitalist. Do you have a, a good jawline? Do you have you know, <laughs> uh, excellent hair? But sometimes <laughs> juries smell bullshit. And sometimes bullshit and, and word salad smell the same, even if the word salad is not bullshit, but is in fact, you're just not good at explaining complex co- topics. Right, right. Um, it sounds like bullshit. And so I think an ability to explain clearly the complex is maybe an underappreciated talent, but it is one of the few ones that I will I will claim for myself. Sure. If I if I am able to get over the hump of its of understanding it myself, I think then I do can do a good job of helping others. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that comes through in your work, Andy, and and I'm glad you mentioned that connection between history uh, and economics because it it has it has occurred to me when I've read your work that the historical perspective is informative in your work. It seems right. It's not obviously the maybe the basis necessarily in your expert testimony in these cases against the NCAA, but I think the knowledge of that history of the NCAA and it's, let's say, pockmarked past, I think has, has informed, you know, your perspective you on it. Pox. Yeah, exactly. So, so let's talk about that, Andy, because, you know, I'm curious, probably from my perspective, the case that might be most interesting to the listeners out there is probably the Ed O'Bannon case, which you worked on. And I wonder if you could just, uh, take us through how you got involved in that case and what you did. Sure. I very, very rarely in my industry initiate contact with lawyers to get case. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, I would say you could put on, it may only be one case and it's the O'Bannon case, the mm-hmm. one exception where the way the direction is, I hear about a case I call the lawyers and I say, oh my God, you have to hire us. We're perfect for this. Mm-hmm. Typical way it happens is somebody files a lawsuit. They cast about for an economist either early on in the process or late in the process. A lot of times it's late, like, oh crap, we have reports due in a month. Who's the best expert on this? They, they do a, a Google search. They find somebody who's written a paper. They ask that person. The person goes, no, I don't do that. But you might want to talk to this guy over here and Eventually, it ends up on our desk, and, and so it's it's very much of a, a passive process. Sure. When I heard about Ed O'Bannon's case, I did everything I could to reach out to the Hausfeld firm and tell them they had to work with us because we had all of the presidential cases and research done already to be well positioned. I had, and and 
I should mention, I have a colleague, his name is Daniel Rasher. He runs the, the academic portion of the University of San Francisco's sport management program. Yes, of course. Uh, and they're a very, very well-regarded sport management program. Really good job. You know, there's a big problem in these master's programs. It's a master's program. Big problem in these master's programs in sport is that they are cash cows for their universities. And a lot of universities don't particularly care how many people they bring in and how successful they are once they leave. Sure. And USF and may I don't know, this is maybe my impression of the Jesuits. Maybe that's it's a overly rosy, but perhaps because they have the Jesuits, they really, really care about only admitting people they think they can place when they're done. So they do a really good job. And I think that's part of that is Dan's dedication. That's my little pitch for USF. I have no affiliation. I make no money for them for them, but he does a great job on that. But because Dan comes up on Google searches because of that, we get a lot of calls on sports stuff. So it's typical that we're doing them. Mm -hmm. On this case though, I re wrote, reached out to them and said, look, we just finished a case about name, image, and likeness in pro sports for retired athletes separately. We just finished a case about price fixing in the NCAA. And that was a case called White v. NCAA. Yes. And that case came out of work that Dan and I had done, basically a paper we had written in 99 that was published in 2000 that led to a, a third economist named Ernie Nadell going out and trying to find a law, a law case to sue the NCAA. Eventually, there was a lawsuit, and I worked on that some, and and so essentially, we had done both halves of Ed's Ed's case, mm -hmm. and it was only a matter of just fusing it together. I had to pester Michael Hausfeld and his team for a couple years because they filed that case in two thousand and nine, and I don't think I started working on it until two thousand eleven. Mm -hmm. But eventually, he relented, and so for two thousand eleven until two thousand and fourteen, I worked on that. I want to say two thousand hours a year, maybe maybe less. Maybe on average 1,500, but at a peak, at least one of the years was 2,000 hours, which is a full year, like, like full time. And of I course. had other cases going on too. So it was a very busy time. And, and some of that was because the NCAA, like a lot of defendants, practiced a sort of scorched earth tactic, which is the best way to defeat a plaintiff is to bleed them out. You file every possible delaying motion. You make the case take as long as possible. And you file every possible request for more and more and more filing. So you file the motion to dismiss seven times and require the other side to oppose it seven times. And so there was filing after filing after filing. And every single time there was more information. And, you know, it's good for my house remodels. <laughs> in some sense, right? Because I charge for my time, but it's not good for America. Right. It, it's not. And, and, and this has definitely led me to believe that we do need civil, civil litigation reform because, and I'll blame the late Justice Scalia because he definitely demonstrated some antipathy towards plaintiffs in civil cases. There were a lot of rulings sure. made during his time on the court that were essentially, oh my God, plaintiffs are holding defendants hostage in all these ways, and they're able to wring money out of these poor defenseless plaintiffs. We should make it harder to sue. But as a result, we have all these cases now where, I, I just heard about a case recently where essentially the judge said, you know, I'm going to dismiss this case, not because necessarily the defendant is innocent or because there isn't a good argument for every single plaintiff, but I'm just concerned that there's no one perfect way for every single plaintiff to get recompense at the same time. Somebody's going to want to do it with formula A. Somebody's going to want to do it with formula B. Now, formula A will work fine for both of them and formula B will work fine both for both of them, but they pref one prefers A and one prefers B. I'm going to make them both sue individually. Well, their damages were both $50. And one would have been 45 and 55 and one would have been 55 and 45, and she's like, since they can't agree, I'm gonna make them both sue individually. Well, neither of them is gonna sue individually because no lawyer is gonna take their case right. for $55. So the result is because, because they would fight over who gets the 55 and who gets the 45, they're both gonna get zero. The defendant's gonna keep it all rather than the 100, which we know they're owed. And the question is just, how do you divide that up? And, and that's those are the sort of rulings that have happened since I started working in this industry mm -hmm. back in 97 that have really, you know, it has created a situation. It's all just part of like, you know, the growing oligarchy in our country. 
It's part and parcel of income inequality. It's like justice inequality. And I know civil litigation is not nearly as important as, as criminal criminal law, but I don't work in criminal law, so I don't see that up close. Sure. But I, sure. I, I see it in in civil litigation and it's and it incentivizes bad behavior in a way, right? Right. Because right. then people know if they get caught, well, if they have good right. lawyers. And, and, you know, this is just yeah. one case and it's it's not necessarily a precedent yet, but essentially there's this one little case out there now. It's working its way through the system, which says that all you have to do to ever avoid having a class action against you is make sure that when you offer people money, you make it clear that it's a pool. You make it clear that like there's a prize pool. And then, of course, everybody wants the biggest share of the pool. And so there can never be a, a single method for everyone to, to share it out fairly because everybody wants to say, no, no, I would have gotten more. And the voila, you you can you you you're immune from class action. Now I hope hmm. that doesn't stand. And, you know, sure. Blah, blah 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 blah. It's early. It can get appealed. Duh, 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 duh. But the fact that you know a judge and thinks that that's the the just outcome is a sign. I just think that we've lost our way as a society. Yeah, I share your I share your your view there, Andy. And I'm curious. Let's talk about those issues in in the case of college sports because I think my listeners will really benefit from hearing your analysis of it. And you know, it seemed to me over the years that the courts have been rather conservative in their rulings on college sports. I don't know if you would agree with that, but maybe it has contributed to what you're talking about here. So I want to get your thoughts on that. But but the first question is maybe a bit of a provocative one because you, of course, know that the March Madness basketball tournament is coming up, and I'm curious, is that something you get excited to watch, or can you get excited to watch, given your, your experiences in, in litigation against the NCAA? I used to go, go love March Madness, that I would schedule two days off for the thir- first Thursday and Friday of the tournament, Yep. and I would go to Las Vegas, not because I like to gamble, Mm-hmm. because I wanted to just be in a crowd of people who are watching the games. I would sit in like the MGM Grand in the theater and watch all the games just sort of before they made it easy to get them on, on your screen or whatever. I wrote my paper, the 2011 paper called 13 Myths, while watching those Thursday, Friday games. I had a laptop on my lap. You're kidding. I, I had just done a little a little piece on ESPN and had read a blog post that the NCAA had posted where they had called my statements, I can't remember the exact words, but it was like stupid. And, and I am hmm. pretty immune to insult. <laughs> like you can say I'm ugly, you can say I'm short, you can say I'm overly focused on the picky union, you can say a lot of things, but like, I know I'm not stupid and I don't like being called stupid. So when you say I'm stupid, especially when I know that's just you saying that I'm being insightful and mm-hmm. you don't like the insight. Mm-hmm. It made me really mad. So I'm sitting there banging on the keyboard, typing out what I thought was going to be like an open letter to those bastards at the NCAA. And then during the course of it, I got asked, would I present something at a, at a, a symposium? So it turned into this paper that became my, my symposium paper. Um, and it's it's written, I don't know if you know that paper, but it's not written very academically. It's written very colloquially. Mm-hmm. And I like it for that. And in fact, um, a professor at the Air Force Academy just told me that she's using it again this semester. She's used it every semester for every every year for like five years. And I said, by the way, you know, I did update it. And then I realized the updated paper is all academic and boring. And the this one, you know, this one is raw and 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 sounds like a rant and even though it's well footnoted and so anyway but yeah i didn't watch very much last year which i guess was the first tournament post covid and it was the first time that i didn't watch much in a long time ever Mm -hmm. and i don't know if that's because the whole pandemic just sort of changed my viewing habits Mm -hmm. or because it finally sunk in for a long time i said to myself it's not hypocritical for you to adore the spectacle of college sports because you are devoting huge chunks of your time, both compensated in the, like in the Ed O'Bannon's case, but also uncompensated in the professional collegiate league sense and, and in all the papers you write and in all the sure. advocacy work you do to change the system. And that, that's really the two choices is you, you can watch it if you like, if you like mandatory indentured servitude 
So if you're the kind of person that thinks, you know, thinks that's a good thing, <laughs> then it's perfectly consistent. <laughs> or if you want to watch it, you've got to work to change the system. But to think, tut, tut, this is a bad thing, but I love it. So I'm going to watch it. I'm not going to do anything to try to change it. That's a bad space to be in, I think. I think it's mm -hmm. now we're all guilty of that sort of thing in one way or another. I probably, you know, do less for the environment than I should. Like, you know, I have the electric car, I have solar on my panels, on, but I, you know, I don't recycle quite as well as I should. Da, da, da. So I'm not really trying to say everybody, but for me, but I'm just, I don't know. And we'll see what happens in a few weeks. Right. I'll check back in with you. Right. Now, some of that also may be because particular, there's a couple of things. Because I'm working on the PCL work and I have been working very closely with basketball people, I've become much more attuned to how bad college basketball is at certain things, just basketball things. Mm -hmm. My appreciation of basketball things has gotten better. The closeness of games doesn't matter as much to me as it did three years ago if it's sloppy or ugly basketball. Uh -huh. And David West is our COO. And That's he right, talks yeah. a lot about how bad of a job some teams do at preparing guys for the NBA. And the other thing is, is I'm spoiled is I live in the Bay Area and the Warriors play oh, we're spoiled. basketball. We're spoiled, yeah. And if you look, if you watch a few Warriors games, it's really hard. And I'm a Stanford fan. It's really hard to watch a Stanford game after that because it's just not the Warriors. And I'm, I don't mean in terms of skill. I mean in terms of, of style of play. Right. And spacing. And you've become a basketball purist, it sounds. Well, right. And it's kind of funny because when you talk to people my age or older, a lot of times they'll tell you they like to watch college basketball because college athletes play the right way. Yeah, that's right. Now, that may be true about women's basketball. It's not true about men's basketball. Men's pro basketball today is much more flowing, flowing is much more passing. Now, maybe the mid-range jumper is a dying thing and that might be, but I, I think that college, men's college basketball right now is really stultified. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's some of it. So I guess the way I can I can I will consume March Madness this year is in whip around mode, mm -hmm. um, which is not really watching basketball. It's watching outcomes, big plays, yeah, uh, and not even big plays. Just I kind of want to watch the last four minutes of every game. Yeah, yeah. Which I, I which isn't you. which isn't the same thing. It's fun, but I used to like to watch twelve hours of basketball basically where I would like run out on Thursday morning to Safeway before the game started <laughs> yeah, to get yep. my food. So I wouldn't have to take a break and miss <laughs> anything. And like, yep. you know, like practically could have catheter on me and, and I'm not like that anymore. <laughs> the other thing, and this is, I think worth talking about too, is I think as people get older, that joy of fandom fades. It's just hard. Mm, to mm -hmm. do it. And I think people confuse that. I think this is why everybody says, oh, sports were better when I was younger. No, you were better when you were younger. <laughs> As a fan, you were a better fan when you were younger. Yeah, you dedicated you more time because you had more it. time. Yeah. And, and, and you're confusing it. If you were the you that you were when you were, when, when basketball was like the 80s, when it was brutal and people were beating each other up and stuff, now, you love basketball now as much as you loved it then. Oh, but the last thing I was going to say is those guys who say that they like college men's college basketball more because it's played the right way. I'm going to say it. Some of them are just saying, I like it because it's whiter. Mm -hmm. I don't like the fact that the guys that won, the NBA is a, is a lot blacker than the NCAA. And two, it seems like they're in charge. They have a lot of, ad, they have a lot of agency in the NBA, and I like it better that the coaches are in charge in college. Oh, sports. how interesting. I hadn't thought about so that. So the right way mm -hmm. is like authoritarian. And the coaches, of course, are all are not all white, but the coaches but are predominantly are. white. Yeah, and right. so I would definitely check anybody's assumptions when you hear them say that. And one quick way to say is it's so oh, so you like women's basketball better than men's basketball. Right. Yeah. If they go, no, well, well, I mean, that's all about fundamentals. And yeah, but they're slow and like, well, yeah, so what? Speed, basketball was meant to be played slow. James Naismith didn't see it as a, as a fast dunking game. Yeah. So.
Yeah. How interesting. Yeah. So I'm, and I'm, I'm curious though, you know, I mean, I guess I asked the question more, I appreciate your answer, but I guess I asked the question more in a way to, to get your thoughts on, on the NCAA and it's, it's money making off of the players and whether, you know, I know you answered it to some degree, but is that play any role at all in, mm. in your, well, your, so I said, I don't, yeah. I don't come probably a lot of people you talk, you've talked to who are critics of the NCAA come at it from a perspective that there's the guys who do the end of sport podcast. I don't know if you listen to them. They're really smart. I would call them basically they're socialists and they bring that socialist perspective to how they view sport. Right. So as a result, the fact that college sport is a commercial endeavor bothers them. I'm an antitrust economist. I think the problem is not that the NCAA sells the product. I think the problem is the NCAA colludes not to pay the workers. To restrain their, their wages. Now, the right? socialists and the, and the market economists can come to an agreement that if the workers are being denied their share of the fruits of their labor, we have an overlap there. But mm -hmm. we have a very different view, I think, of, of how we feel about capital being rewarded in the process, right? Yes, so, right. Right. They, you know, I mean, we could probably fight over what the, what the right way to figure out the value of labor, too. They probably have a labor theory of value. And I think you're worth what the market will pay you. And right. Those will give you different answers. Sure. Right? So, for example, I suspect, you know, ask a socialist whether a men's basketball player and a men's lacrosse player should get paid differently or not. They'd be like, no, they both work 40 hours a week. And I'd be like, yeah, of course, basketball is more popular. And uh, because in the market, more popular means more money. And, but so I really don't have a problem with the NCAA trying to maximize the value of its tournament. Mm -hmm. There are small things I could talk about. For example, the NCAA, in my opinion, engaged in anti-competitive conduct to drive the NIT out of business and then to acquire it and make yes. a monopoly in postseason basketball where there had been a competitive yep. situation the nit was actually the more popular that's right of the two they engaged in a variety of things we it's not really to this podcast's topic to cause the nit to lose luster and then die and mm -hmm. now it's, it exists as an ncaa minor league consolation round it's a fun tournament it's not what it was and that was my my, my belief is it was it was an unpunished antitrust violation Mm -hmm. And when there was a lawsuit, it was settled in a very bad way so that the NCA was allowed to acquire it, which is a, a horrible way to end an antitrust case, which is to have a merger to a monopoly. Mm -hmm. So it perpetuates the, the, the antitrust violation. They did um, that to the AI, AI, what is it? The uh, AIAW as well in women's sports, women's basketball. Right. Now you could thing, argue, yeah. I, I would make the case that men's basketball, and women's basketball, probably not in the same relevant market we're really getting into the weeds antitrust wise that but by which I mean that if the price of men's basketball goes up by a lot, there's not going to be a tremendous amount of switching over to women's basketball. And maybe in, in the, in a hundred years, that'll be different that they'll be seen as closer substitutes, but especially at the time of that, this, this take over by the NCAA, that certainly wasn't the case. So, so that's a little different antitrust wise, but, but yeah, same sort of thing, which is, which is that, but, but, Okay. Leaving that aside, so the fact that they make a ton of money once a year on a three-week basketball tournament, I think is great. I think that if all they did was make that tournament and then use that, distribute 95% of that money to schools like they do, and use the other 5% to make health and safety regulations and to run the other tournaments that, that are basically break-even or maybe even lose a lot of, little bit of money, that would be a wonderful organization in Indianapolis, and they could pay their 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 CEO type of person five hundred thousand dollars. It'd be a nice salary. You'd live very well in Indianapolis to run a you know a three week event, mm -hmm. and then a bunch of these ancillary events that take up all your year. But that you know, instead, what they do is they run a wage fixing cartel to depress, to make sure that none of that money goes to the the primary labor in the production of this tremendous entertainment product project so that when they distribute the 95% to the schools the schools can keep it all rather than being in a situation where they might give half of it to the workforce and and then that's the sin the sin is not the commercialization 
per se. The over commercialization. I don't even really know what over commercialization means. Right, right. Um, and I say that because I guess over commercialization would be putting on, trying to make something more commercial than the market will bear, which would make it lose popularity. But right. making it more commercial so that you get more money, that's just commercialization. People say over commercialization. I don't think they mean that. And I've yet to see the NCA hit this point where, in fact, they have it's so commercial that people stop watching. So it doesn't seem over, likely. It's not over commercialized. It's just more commercialized. The sin is rather the the going all in on being commercial while at the same time colluding to to not be professional in all kind of senses of the word, both professional in terms of paying things, but also like treating athletes as adults as partners you know like they're very amateurish in the negative sense of the word about how they go mm-hmm. about, about their their labor relations right and i think i've read you you've, you've said paternalistic as well right yeah like but that like bad dad right well well that's kind of what what i how i interpret but yeah i mean there's some paternalism that i think well, maybe we can know some of the stuff that happened in the NIL legislation that that went on the past couple of years mm-hmm. was very paternalistic, but had a had a has good dad, good mom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We 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 would requ- require that all college athletes take a, fu- a financial literacy course. Racist, probably, because it comes from an assumption that you don't understand money because like, well, these are all these black football kids and. They don't know money. I think every 18-year-old should be required to take financial literacy. And that's paternalistic too, kind of, sort of. So, but I think mine is coming from a good spot, which is that I want more financially literate adults. The fact that they're singling out just athletes in these bills is where where it's problematic. But the urge, even if it's coming from a bad spot, is to generate a good thing. Whereas here's the bad paternalism. Having too much money may lead you to spend it poorly. Right, right. Rather than teaching you how to spend it wisely, we're not going to give it to you. That's bad, bad dad, bad dad paternalism. We're going to protect you from horrible financial mistakes by impoverishing you. Well, it should also be illegal. I mean, I think that's kind of well, what right. these it cases. Is, I would maintain it is <laughs> yeah, illegal. Uh, yeah, but um, but it should be enforced as being illegal. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think we're we're in agreement there. And I think really what what's interesting. Um, about your work, Andy, is that you have a perspective on how to reform college sports that, as you say, you know, bringing up the other podcast isn't necessarily heard about that much in the, the popular, you know, mainstream media. But but I, I want to get to those kind of views because you, you've written this article about team reform versus team market. And, uh, you know, I think that's, I, I want to get into sort of the, the details of that perspective, if you don't mind. You know, that's so, a, that, that is, I think, still the single best distillation of how I see the world Right. Uh, both in terms of how I see the, how the whole world is and how I think the world should be. Sure. Yeah. So, so let me read, let me read for just a little bit about what you said back then. You said that this was in a dead spin piece in 2014, arguing that there are two ways to reform college sports at the big time level. One to reform the NCAA and, and in your words, run the college sports in a way that is quote, closer to the way club sports run, no major TV contracts, low, if any coaching salaries, and certainly no athletes receiving pay in excess of the current scholarship, close quote. And the other possible reform would be to allow the NCAA to be as, quote, commercial as the market wants, which is probably a little bit more commercial than it is now, but not that much. But that in that effort, it cannot deny its athletes access to the same market system of compensation that every other participant in the enterprise enjoys, close quote. So you call these team market and team reform and say that the former better encapsulates your view and so I'm, I'm curious what experiences or knowledge led you to that view. Like what was it that helped you get to that point? I mean, working on the, the Obama case, to, I'm sure. but Led me to join Team Market or led me to see the world as consisting of these two poles? Three uh, poles, former. Really, the former. The, the NCAA. Yeah, the former. Oh, well, if you give a baby a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If you give an antitrust economist a problem, everything looks like a market solution. I... I guess maybe the better question is, why did you become an antitrust economist? It was 1997. I was ready to drop out of grad school yet again, and I got offered a job as one, literally. But then I took to it. It provided a really good framework for me to view the world and view how, you know, how markets work. You know, we talked about people being a socialist. I'm, I'm not that far to the right of them politically, 
I I'm probably I'm probably a Scandinavian socialist. But even Scandinavian socialists do want there to be market economies. They just believe in in highly redistributive sort of back end to the right. to their economies. And and that's that's sort of that's sort of where I am politically. And so I think that taking advantage of the general high expanding benefits of markets as long as they don't lead to market failure is a really good first approximation of how you should organize a society and then you use your body politic to solve the redistributional problems mm-hmm. the ncaa goes about it sort of almost the opposite way they, they focus very heavily on preventing a bad distribution in their mind and let the pie size be damned in some sense. Sometimes they'll say like, well, if we, you know, if we let people earn what they could, then different athletes would earn different amounts and we can't have that. And I said, whoa, so you don't want two people on the team to get a different amount of of money. And they're like, right. And like, so walk-ons versus scholarship athletes. What do you think about that? Like, oh, well, we're not talking about walk-ons. Like, well, why not? And, you know, they can't quite handle that. And I say, okay, well, let's talk about the baseball team. There are 25 guys on the baseball team and no more than three of them earn the same amount of scholarship. Like they're all getting different amounts of scholarship. Like, oh, well, I was talking about the football team. Like, well, why is baseball, why does football have to be egalitarian, but baseball can be like a different, yeah. it, it just, or how about, it just how about NCAA of, salaries for executives or conference officials and their salaries? I mean, they're not the same. It's yeah. crazy. The sort of stuff you'll hear about Even now, people are saying that there's going to be, you know, dissension in the locker room Mm. because the quarterback is getting a better NIL deal (laughs) than the linebacker. Yeah, exactly. No, I'm with you. I think they, I think the athletes need to share a bigger piece of the pie. And, and I, I think that the, the team, team market approach has, makes a lot of sense, as, as you describe it in that, that 2014 article. And what, one thing that you wrote there, which I found really interesting, I want to read it as well, if you don't mind. But you said that at the heart of this view that team reform has, this ambivalence about good old American capitalism fuels team reform and gives it an appeal that would be unusual in any other industry. The market unfettered channels commercial rewards to sports. This makes us look in the mirror and see who we really are. And it is not quite as intellectual as team reform would like. And so there's the desire to erect higher barriers to our own expressed failings as a nation to punish ourselves for liking sports more than school. And if that requires us to extract the market value of the true revenue generators to redirect it where we wish the market had gone, so be it. Close quote. And I, I thought that was really an interesting article. But I'm curious. I mean, it, it's eight years now since then. Do you still believe all that? Yes. And, and I was going to say, I, 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 that's a, a big part of it. There's all the, you, It's in there, too. And you maybe you're going to bring it up, too. But I, I think it's, it, it's also really important to recognize that a lot of the people who make those kind of arguments, even if they're not in this subconscious mode where they're like, yeah, I don't really like the fact that, I mean, there definitely is this, like, we shouldn't make sports so important. Mm, yeah. And so there's, there is a proscriptive versus descriptive view of the world. Like, I'm just saying, that's fine. I agree. We shouldn't, but we do. Yeah. Until, yeah. Yeah, until, exactly. Like, until we're willing to, like, like someone to like, well, we shouldn't pay people more because they're football players over, over nurses. Great. Pass a law. Let's have socialism. When we have that, then I agree with you. Until then, as long as hedge fund managers get paid more than nurses, then football players should too. Right, right. And so that's that's one part of it. Then the other piece is, is, and I think this is really important, is that the kind of people who make these arguments that academics should be treated as more important than sports, and therefore we shouldn't be overpaying students involved in the athletic piece of it, for the most part, just coincidentally, happen to all be paid to be academics. And so if the money did flow in the directions that they said, well, what do you know, they would get paid more. And so it's hard to disentangle that. One of my favorite quotes is Upton Sinclair. It's difficult to convince a man of something if it's to make a man understand something if his salary depends on him not understanding it. Sure. And so, yeah, definitely. I mean, guilty as charged, Andy. I, I just, I just finished writing this book about women's college basketball, and I'm making the case in the book that to reform college sports in a way that's equitable for all, we really do have to refocus our attention on education. But 
thanks to you in our meeting back in 2018, I'm not saying that they shouldn't be paid. So I think it's more of a hybrid argument. I think that athletes absolutely de deserve to be part of this. But I wonder what you would say to somebody who says, well, if it is really about team market and, and paying the players, then why not just take the sports out of the university entirely? I mean, it seems to me that's sort of the thrust behind the professional collegiate league which, of which you're a part, is it, isn't it? That's not how the, how the PCL was originally, how I originally envisioned it. It is okay. how we've evolved in part because the schools that I wanted to work with had no desire to work with us. Oh, I see. It was originally going to be, the, the short version is the HBCUs, the historically black colleges and universities, do not get a particularly large share of the exploitative profits that the NCAA makes. And I thought it would be a fairly easy pitch to go to them and say, the primary victims of the exploitation are young black men. Yes. The HBCUs as a group exist for the socioeconomic uplift of young black people, about half of whom are men. <laughs> yes. Why are you participating in this exploitation and then also accepting such a small sliver of it? Right, right, like, right. Like, why are you Seems selling like a reasonable out pitch to me yeah. for such a tiny little piece? Mm -hmm. Why don't you instead, or in addition, because there was both versions, it didn't have to be instead, right? Do this thing that that re that affirms the value of their of the of their skills and their talents and their effort and their and their labor within the context of education, mm -hmm. take separate amateurism from education and sports being combined because they're completely yes. separate ideas. I agree, but they're often conflated, aren't they? Right, right. Amateurism means you didn't get paid. And being a college athlete means you're an athlete who goes to college. Right. And, you know, Emma Watson was a collegiate actress when she was making some of those Harry Potter films and she was getting paid, no one said, oh, she's not really in college. And no one said, no, she's not really an actress. She wasn't an amateur though, and she didn't need to be one. And on the other hand, you know, when I go post-college, when I went and played ultimate in the park every once in a while, I was still an amateur, right? I wasn't a college athlete, right? They're separate. And, and so anyway, they weren't interested and we can, maybe spend seven years trying to figure out why I spent, I spent about seven years trying to figure out why, but, but sure, so we sure. moved to this other model where we still want our athletes to be in college and we're paying for their college yes. and, and they're all going to go to college either in the city in which they're playing, or they're going to be going to a, a some sort of hybrid program. So, so yes. they're effectively, they're not commuting to play and go to school. And plus there's the games are in the summer anyway, but yeah, it's separated. And so that's one way to go about it. I think we're going to be great and successful. And in the long run, it's a better deal for our investors because we're building a brand. Yeah. In the version I originally had, I, you, you're, we're going to be just audio here, but I'm wearing a, a, a Morehouse sweatshirt today. The Maroon Tigers. Yes. The, you know, the brands would have, that would have grown in value would have been HBCU brands. And that was part of the idea was, and when we're done, the HBCUs will be on a slightly stronger financial footing because we will have reinvigorated these brands that used to be very strong have weakened over time. Was it a civil rights issue for you, partially? I mean, it, I, I think I think that being denied access to to markets through collusion is a civil rights issue. And when it for anybody, sure. And when it hits a predominantly minority community, it's a civil rights issue in the sense that we say it when we talk about civil rights in the United States because we all mm -hmm. have civil rights. White people have civil rights too, right? Right. But when we say civil rights, we mean rights for black people or, or in the and and so yes it has it's become what the ncaa does is violate the sherman act which is not uh, part of our civil rights laws right. but antitrust yeah but but the impact is a disproportionately disproportionately affects african-american men for the most part women for the left as well but le less so Mm -hmm. And so it is a civil rights issue in, in that sense of the word civil rights. And so, yes, it's, it's that. And in a similar way, I saw the problem as like HBCUs have this real, I mean, if, if you look at the financial state of the HBCUs, with a few exceptions, 
you know, like Howard is doing okay, but a lot of these great schools are in perilous financial condition. There's a, there's a lot of things going on. And this was kind of like part of more like my sales pitch to them. Like you guys need money. We want to give you money. Why do we want to give you money? Because we want to do a win-win proposition with you. We want your brands not to have to rent. Right. And we want to rent them in a way that when we're done with them, well, we're never going to be done with them, but as we're using them, they're going to grow in value and you can use that value to get better academic students because there's all this research that shows yes. that Michigan gets better scientists because yeah. of Michigan football and Michigan basketball. Absolutely. And so you Maroon Tigers, people will not go the who they'll go. Oh yeah. Morehouse. They're in Atlanta. I saw them play basketball. Well, you didn't really see them play basketball. You saw the, the PCL team play basketball. doesn't matter. I saw guys with Maroon Tigers on their jerseys playing and Da, 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 da. So that is one option to take it completely out of the schools. And, and so now when the PCL plays, it's not going to be the Maroon Tigers. It's going to be the Atlanta name redacted because I'm not allowed to tell you our brand for Atlanta yet. But the DC Stealth is our, our Washington team. We wanted it to be the Howard Bison, but but it won't be. And so that, that, that opportunity is gone. But I still think that there is win-win when schools and athletes come together and, and share their brands. Sure. This is, again, something going on in the current NIL space. When, when, the, when the NCAA said on July 1st of 2021 that they were essentially acquiescing to the NIL movement that had erupted, and I should say, California, go, we started it. Like the one kind of thing that they said was, yeah, but schools better not share their IP with athletes. And I was like, I can't believe that they once again managed to find a pie shrinking way to mm -hmm. do business. Mm -hmm. Because if you take a uniform and you put it on a basketball court and just lay it there and film it, it's worth something. And if you take an athlete and you put him on the, on the court in his workout clothes without any brands, logos on it, it's worth something. If you put the athlete in the uniform, it is worth more than the sum of those two. Like this is literally the whole is worth more than the sum of the parts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so in the professional leagues, the NFL and the NFLPA will jointly license the NFL's brands and the NFLPA's players, intellectual property, names, images, and likenesses, et cetera, in commercials because advertisers will pay more for the joint use of those two together. Right. The NCA comes out and says, do whatever you want, but make sure you do it in a way that's value destroying. <laughs> well, but it, but the difference there is there's a collective bargaining agreement, right? Between the players and the, they have a union. And, and they, the they do, but, but you don't need a union to have those deals happen. All you have to do is say, just get the hell out of the way. And if I'm Nike and I already have a deal with Duke. With the coaches, yeah, and the university, but not the players. And I make a deal with a player, which I, I can do now. Then I say... Okay, great. I've got both pieces of the, of the puzzle. Not, uh, I'm going to use my license to put somebody in a Duke uniform. I'm going to put you in the Duke uniform. And that was the one thing the NCAA said that he couldn't do was use schools marks with in conjunction with the athlete. Now, very quickly, that sort of softened, I think, because the schools, I don't really quite understand this. The schools are ignoring the NCAA right now. The NCAA is making noise about trying to enforce things. And I don't know what's going to happen. Simultaneous with this NIL stuff going into effect was the Supreme Court ruled on Alston. That's right. And everyone got spooked and nobody really knows what's going on. And there's active litigation going on. And I shouldn't say too much in this space, but. Um, that's okay. We got to get to your board game anyway. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> it's the more important thing for the, the short thing, but the short version is that I think we will see a, a, at some point we will see the NCAA make one last attempt to put the toothpaste back in the tube, put the genie back in the bottle, put the baby back in the uterus, whatever metaphor you like for doing things that really shouldn't be done in terms of reversing processes. And it will be interesting to see how they justify it hmm. because the kind of justifications that I think that are fit the antitrust world would be the market that has erupted has market failure. Transactions that should be happening aren't happening you know, like we've created a market where used cars don't sell because nobody believes that used cars are any good. We need we need some form of, of certified pre-owned mm. system. And mm -hmm. to create a certified pre-owned system, 
all the auto dealers have to agree on a standard. That would be like a classic good collusion that we might have that because if, if, if we had a situation where no one was buying used cars because everyone thought they were lemons. Right. There's a paper about this. I'm, 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 I'm stealing from George Akerloff, who both has a Nobel Prize and is married to George Janet Yellen. So they are like the, the power couple of economists. I was going to say that's uh, so no wasted probably, food on their table. the only Nobel Prize winner whose wife is a better economist than him. Nobel Prize winner in, in economics. And sure. so, so then, but then there's all the bad reasons. And like the bad reasons are the ones that I hear people saying like, well, you know, it kind of seems like schools are using NIL as an inducement. Well, that's what markets are for, right? Like we want people to if, if, we, if we believe in markets, we want people to be attracted to the market where they are worth the most, right. because that's welfare maximizing. And like I said, we want to make the pie as big as possible and then figure out the redistributional problems that that creates as a second order problem. But I don't think there are any redistributional problems to athlete A goes to market A because market A values him more than any other market right. and expresses it with the biggest offer to be in a commercial. So yeah. anyway, yeah. Well, we'll see. Yeah, we will. And there is there is a ample opportunity to talk again about these issues down the road because a lot will change probably in the next few years. But before we go, I'm, we're running out of time here, Andy, but I want to make sure we get to talk about your board game. So if, tell the listeners about, about your game and where they can get it, where they can pre-order it. It's coming out soon, right? Yes. So I am a big fan of, of board games that are collectively... They used to be called German board games, but the hobby in Germany did has expanded pretty much throughout Europe. So they're called Euros now. And to be clear, there is a whole niche hobbyist group of board gamers. These are not games for kids. 12-year-olds can play them, but but you know, you, you need to have an adult brain to play most of these games. They are they are games for adults. And I don't mean that in the gross sense of adult, but like games just for grownups. And <laughs> just and one you may X, have heard not... of like, right, right. Like you may have heard of like Settlers of Catan, maybe. Sure, sure. Uh, as a emblematic, it was a 1995 game. It kind of is one of the pioneers of, of this genre. And when COVID hit and everyone was baking bread, I did that for a little while too, but I'm kind of a keto guy. So there was only so many things I could do there. Mm-hmm. I decided, okay, it's finally time for me to get that idea that's been bouncing around in my head and put it on paper and I made, I took all the ideas for a German style, Euro style board game, but based on college football recruiting and, and, and wrangled into a game. And then since then I've been working with an illustrator and a graphic design guy. And we are, we are really ready to launch the game. It's quite fun. I have demoed it at game conventions. I've shown it to people online. I have yet to get a person who, if they let me spend the 20 minutes to teach them the rules after it doesn't say, this is so fun. And oftentimes it's the back end. This is so much fun, than, more, more fun than I thought it was going to be. Right, right, usually right. It's, 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 wow, I want to play again. So it is a really fun game. There is, it plays at three levels. It's a good game. It's a fun, fun game if you know college football recruiting, because there's 120 cards and there's all this reference to the sort of silliness that goes on in college football. So you don't need to know college sports. You can just play it as a game. And the joke I make there is like, you know, the big, the most, one of the most popular games in the board game hobby is about building up a territory in 15th century Burgundy. It's called Castles of Burgundy. And, and people are like, well, I don't know anything about college sports. How can I play? It's like, well, what do you know about building up territory in 15th (laughs) century Burgundy? Like, oh, okay, maybe. And so then, like I say, well, what if I called it Castles of Bamondy? Would you play it then? And then but it's called envelopes of cash because it's all about slipping athletes under the table money. You use this currency, you, you're trying to get the, the best recruiting class. The second level it plays out is as a college thing. The third level, and this is mostly in the rule book and maybe also in the whole normalization of the whole game where the whole objective is to do best by paying your players. There is a, there's social commentary in the rule book. Yes. It doesn't affect how the game plays, but like, as an example, in all of these games, there's often something a friend of mine said, like, you need a whimsical way to determine who's the first player. Mm-hmm. Something will be, if there's a game about building houses, whoever was the last person to touch a hammer is the first player. And then <laughs> at the table, you have to talk about, like, well, I used a hammer when I was making this IKEA furniture. So mine says, whoever was the last victim of, of wage theft. And then it says, if nobody was, then, then choose randomly. And so little things like that. But then also, my hope is that is that when people are done playing this game five or ten times and 
the next time it comes up, they're like, I don't get it. It's so easy. Just you just pay them. I I played envelopes of cash a bunch of times and you just give them envelopes of cash and they join your team. What what's what's so hard about it? Why do you have to figure out how to pay them? They all have an asking price. If you meet their asking price, they join your team. Yes. You go. And there that is, go. in fact, how easy it is. If anybody's out there saying, well, I think it's okay to pay players, but we need to figure out a plan. We need to figure out a plan exactly the same way we need to figure out a plan, how much to pay every architect in the country. We don't have that plan. And yet every architect in the country gets paid, except for the ones that are forced to work off the books. And I would say that should be banned too. Yeah. Um, well, on that note, Andy, thank you so much. That was a great way to end. And I really appreciate you coming on today. And I, I've learned a lot from talking to you. And as always, I hope we can talk again soon about the progress of the PCL and your board game and everything else. So if you can uh, direct everybody to uh, bit.ly slash KS underscore capital E little O capital C, they can learn all about the game. I'll put it in the description of the show and, and hopefully you, you get to sell a lot of uh, board games and, and I hope it goes really well. I know I'll get a copy. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Of it course. Nice of course. You too, Andy. Have a great rest of your day. Bye-bye. Well, that'll wrap up our show for today. Hope you've enjoyed it. Why not check out Andy's board game? And while you're at it, think of a way you can help advance the rights of college athletes. Drop me a line if you'd like to discuss. Thanks for listening, everyone, and have a great day.